The following episode marks the 75th anniversary of Major League Baseball's integration on April 15, 1947, and is made possible in part by the work of William J. Marshall, courtesy of the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History at the University of Kentucky, KentuckyOralHistory.org. Integration marked the culmination of nothing, the completion of nothing. It was not an endpoint. It was an underlying passage in the long, complex, unfinished history of Black America, yet an essential one. You see, professional baseball came to existence at the same time as, and in a way because of, the freedom of Black Americans following the Civil War. After the Civil War, Black folks left the Deep South and moved to the Midwest and really the Northern Seaboard looking for what I like to refer to as industrialized opportunities, which coincidentally is why you saw the formation of Negro League teams anchored in those cities, because quite frankly, that is where you had your largest concentration of that primary Black fan base that supported Black baseball. But the seeking of these opportunities also came with the seeking of justice and liberty. And those things have been a little bit harder to come by. The struggles have been well-documented. You know, when you go from being enslaved people to fighting for freedom and uh, trying to get access to what was called the American dream, that dream for African-Americans was and seemingly more of a nightmare because it has been a long winding road toward the pursuit of what America held as the dream. Life in Black America itself was unique. It was challenging. But there was a level of unification within those communities. Negro Leagues Baseball was really at the heart of that. Now, on the outside looking in, it's really where the challenges occur. The perception of Black folks, the various initiatives that were fought against, for instance, 1870, the 15th Amendment passes, but what happens? The states immediately find loopholes and legal challenges to try to prevent Black Americans from having the right to vote. It strikes me that to this day, there is still that same challenge out there trying to prevent those in the African-American community from voting. Or by the time we get to 1896, and now it's Plessy versus Ferguson, which of course establishes separate but equal. Of course, it was difficult for anything to be equal when, in essence, you had less than from the get-go. That always posed challenges, but through it all, you always had those who rose above those challenges. And I think that's why when we look at the story of the Negro Leagues in particular, while life itself wasn't great for African Americans from an external standpoint, what the Negro Leagues did, however, was it gave us something that was inherently ours and something that we took great pride in and we supported it tremendously. And then Negro Leagues Baseball supported those African-American communities in a significant fashion. And so while segregation forced isolation, what segregation also did was it forced us to own, to have our own. There were men in power along the way who could have easily ended segregation in baseball. They didn't. And then there are those who defied them and fought for baseball's integration long before Branch Rickey. This is their story. The story of the road to baseball's integration, part one. With William Marshall, this is the man who bought the Cleveland Indians in 1946 and immediately signed Larry Doby. 
the American League's first black player. This is Bill Veck. Why were your fellow owners afraid of, of, of blacks in baseball? Look, almost everybody is afraid of the unknown, the fear of darkness, the basic feeling of unease of people that you've wronged. That's a holdover. We, we feel guilty about the American Indian. We try to push him out of sight under a rug, hoping he'll go away. So that is true of black athletes, particularly black ball players, getting in. If you don't look at it, there isn't any problem. And so they felt that this would weaken their financial returns and would be a constant reminder of the inequality that has been enforced, I think. As you could well imagine, this museum, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, is filled with symbolism. One of those symbols is chicken wire. And chicken wire is particularly interesting as we couch this story at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum because it's a separating mechanism from our field of legends. And obviously I'm biased. I think the field of legends, which is a mock baseball diamond that houses 10 of 12 life-size bronze sculptures of Negro League greats, they represent the first group of Negro Leaguers to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, and they're all cast in position as if they were playing a game. It's a very powerful display. The chicken wire backstop is symbolic of American segregation. You see, during that era, if black fans were allowed in to watch a major league game, that is how we were separated, with a chicken wire barrier. And so we use that same chicken wire here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to separate all of our visitors from the centerpiece of our exhibition. So now as you make your way into the gallery, one of the most compelling statements as we look at what ultimately led to integration in our sport. And there's a very powerful quote. And the quote is from Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis to Rube Foster, who had established the Negro Leagues here in Kansas City in 1920. And the quote says, Mr. Foster, when your teams beat ours, you give us a black eye. What that tells me is that we've always known that these athletes were good enough to play in the major leagues. It was indeed the social conditions of our time and fear that kept them out of the major leagues. And stemming from that fear... The embodiment of those social conditions in the early 20th century was a ruthless segregationist and former federal judge from Indiana, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, Major League Baseball's first commissioner. In Baseball the Golden Age, historian Harold Seymour called Landis scowling, white-haired, hawk-visaged, curmudgeon who affected battered hats, used salty language, chewed tobacco, and poked listeners in the ribs with a stiff right finger. Appointed to power in 1921, following the sports brush with the Black Sox scandal, Landis spent his first year issuing a ban of all World Series participants from barnstorming against Black players in the offseason, even suspending Babe Ruth and two others for the first six weeks of 1922 for playing against Oscar Charleston's club. And Charleston won, by the way. When the St. Louis Stars defeated the Detroit Tigers and the Hilldale Athletic Club took down the Philadelphia Athletics, Landis made it law that no more than three players from a major league club could participate in even an exhibition against a black team. Why? Again, the fear. The fear that a team of black ball players just might be seen as equal. And I always preface fear because I don't think the superstar major leaguer was ever concerned about integration. It was the average major leaguer that I think was mostly concerned about integration. But as we examine the pathway to integration in our game, I think it's important to understand that black folks been playing baseball for a long time. There's evidence of us playing baseball as enslaved people. And of course, black baseball teams began to form in the late 1800s. But there are always these efforts to try and integrate our game. 
we go back and look at the pioneering role of Bud Fowler, who we've talked about in our Hall of Fame edition of Black Diamonds. Bud Fowler, the first known black professional baseball player. And Bud Fowler quickly understood that he was carrying the weight of his race and that his race was always going to be a deterrent for him having the opportunity to not just play but stick and stay with the various major league teams. He was bouncing around from team to team. He became a nomad. Even though his abilities were outstanding, no one wanted him to be there. And so eventually he succumbed to the weight of his race and got into promoting baseball and, of course, would build that juggernaut, barnstorming, legendary team, the Page Fence Giants. And then there's the oh-so-interesting story of William Edward White, who we now recognize as the first Black to play in what would be considered the major leagues. But here's the real interesting sidebar as it relates to William Edward White. William Edward White, y'all, didn't know that he was Black. William Edward White identified himself as a white man. He lived in what he thought was a white world, but as it turns out, he was the byproduct of an affair that the slave owner had with one of the slaves. And he was a very light skin, but let the record show, he was indeed black. And of course, the story of Moses Fleetwood Walker. Before we discovered this kind of interesting tidbit around William Edward White, Moses Fleetwood Walker had been recognized as what we would call the first known black, because Moses Fleetwood Walker was of darker skin. Moses Fleetwood Walker was a barehanded catcher, and it didn't last long before star players like Adrian Cap Anson and others would form, quote-unquote, a gentleman's agreement that would ultimately ban black players from playing on white major league teams. There was no written doctrine. It was just a verbalized agreement amongst players, managers, and owners that essentially said, if you allow black to play with you, you can't play with us. Well, Cap Aston was so good, it was easy for him to build a coalition of followers that shared that same sentiment. And again, that would ban blacks for the next six decades until ultimately Jackie Robinson would re-break Major League Baseball's six-decade-long self-imposed color barrier. The sport would stay white by the ironically titled Gentleman's Agreement for nearly 63 years. From Anson's threats of boycotting games in the late 1800s against opponents with black players through the entirety of the 24-year reign of Kennesaw Mountain Landis. In 1887, the owners of the International League voted in majority to officially ban the signing of black players. And by 1889, black ball players were gone from the high minor leagues. There were attempts along the way to skirt the rules, but none were successful. Baltimore Orioles manager John McGraw in 1901 attempted to roster Negro League second baseman Charlie Grant under the name of Charlie Tokahama, passing him off as a Cherokee. It didn't work. And part of the reason, y'all, that it didn't work was because Charlie Grant was a good-looking guy. He was a bit of a ladies' man. And so there were a lot of sisters who knew who Charlie Grant was. The legend has it when Charlie shows up to play in the game, all these sisters came to the ballpark to see Charlie, and his cover was blown. For decades, segregation flourished in Major League Baseball. In 1908, Jack Johnson became boxing's first black heavyweight champion. Yet, a man who looked like him would have had to watch a Major League game through chicken wire. In 1936, Jesse Owens proved himself to be the premier athlete on planet Earth with four gold medals on Adolf Hitler's home track at the Summer Olympics. Yet, a man with his skin color was deemed inferior for the sake of baseball. Also, Josh Gibson proved time and time again that he belonged in the same lineup as Babe Ruth. But it never happened. Throughout the first half of the 20th century, while Jim Crow laws stripped Black Americans of their rights throughout the South, the Great Migration brought not just six million Black Americans, but Black businesses and Black baseball north and west across the country. 
Legendary sports writer Shirley Povich, a white man, wrote this for the Washington Post in 1939. Quote, There's a couple of million dollars worth of baseball talent on the loose, ready for the big leagues, yet unsigned by any major league clubs. Only one thing is keeping them out of the big leagues, the pigmentation of their skin. They happen to be colored. That's their crime in the eyes of big league club owners. Their talents are being wasted in the rickety parks in the Negro sections of Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, and four other cities that comprise the Major League of Negro Baseball. They haven't got a chance to get into the big leagues of the white folks. It's a tight little boycott that the majors have set up against colored players, end quote. And he was exactly right. Here's Happy Chandler the successor to Kennesaw Mountain Landis as MLB commissioner, speaking in 1980. Judge Landis was a, an unusual fellow. He was wrong about the black thing, but they were all wrong about it. And he was just doing what they wanted him to do about that because if a fellow was black and asked to come in, he said no. He just said no to him. The interesting thing about Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis is that his very much segregationist mindset was somewhat contradictory to his feelings and relationships with those like Rube Foster. Landis had great admiration and respect for Foster, and yet he still held on to this staunch segregationist mindset as it looked at this game. He just flat out refused to even consider the possibility of Black's playing. Shirley Povich. Judge Landis, back in the early 1930s, met a delegation of Negro leaders. They made an eloquent plea for the inclusion of Black players in major leagues and pointed out all of the uh, terrible um, prejudices and inequities of what had taken place until this point. And they asked Landis for some action. expression. And uh, when the last of them uh, made uh, his presentation, Landis simply said, thank you very much, uh, gentlemen, that will be all, period. And he excused them and made no comment whatsoever, either to them or to the assembled club owners. He was holding steadfast to that prevailing belief that this ain't going to happen. And of course, you could hide behind the mindset that they're not good enough. But as we talked about, he had already acknowledged to Rube Foster that they were more than good enough. And so he just locked in. Hall of Famer, Monty Irvin. Uh, here we are, real good baseball players. Right. But still we couldn't play in the major leagues. Right. Oh, that was very frustrating to us. Right. Uh, because we knew uh, that we were better than some of the some of the major league players, and they had an opportunity. Many of us were very, very talented that we would never be able to get any recognition. I don't think we care that much about the money. You know, money's always a factor, of course, but we wanted the recognition, the fact that, yes, you can play major league ball, or yes, you do have major league talent, or yes, you know, uh, you do measure up. And what was frustrating to us was the fact that some of the players that we played against, I'm talking about major leaguers, they would say, gee, we wish you guys could play in the way you guys can play. You certainly ought to be in the major leagues. And, uh, they really raised expectations yet. Well, you didn't know how sincere they were by saying it. Of course, I'm sure some of them were, were, were quite sincere. But again, it showed you, the, you know, how stupid the whole thing was. Happy Chandler. Some of those fellows were superior, the equal or superior. Josh Gibson was probably as good a catcher as anybody ever saw, and he died without ever being able to play. And they hit three or four hundred or five hundred. They could hit, they all could hit, and they all could run. And they were exceptional baseball players, a great many of them were. The fact that uh, all these marvelous, marvelous pitchers and, and, and hitters and fielders, the major league fan not ever seen them play. That's the tragedy. I'm talking about now the real stars, I'm talking about guys like uh, Josh Gibson and Buck Leonard and Satchel Paige and Leon Day and Cool Papa Bell. Just to see some of these men perform uh, in their heyday would have been just an outstanding uh, thing to behold. 
And so when Bill Veck tinkered with the notion of wanting to buy the Philadelphia Baseball Club, and somehow or another, the word got out that Veck was going to fill the team with stars from the Negro Leagues. And y'all, I just got to believe that Veck would have indeed attempted to do so had he gotten ownership of the club, because that's Bill Veck. Bill Veck, too, is an integration pioneer. Landis nixed the deal. This is Bill Veck, the man who would eventually buy the Cleveland Indians in 1946, speaking to interviewer William Marshall. I had made an attempt to put in an all-black team, or what would have ended up as an all-black team, in 1942. I went to Philadelphia and made a deal with Jerry Nugent for the Philadelphia Ball Club. And uh, in interim, Abe Sapperstein got ready to sign the only untouched reservoir of players at that time for the Negro League. I worked what I thought it was a deal with. Came back to Chicago to make sure of my finances. And then I stopped from Judge Landis' office to advise him what I was going to do so that he wouldn't make some injudicious statements. Since all I was doing was perfectly legal and I was going to go ahead and do it. By the time we get to Philadelphia, go over to the ballpark, Nugent no longer owns the club, even though he'd sold it. The National League had taken it over. They subsequently sold it to Cox, the guy that Landis subsequently threw out of baseball. That's in 42, you know, sometime before, Jackie Robinson. Again, as they would now say, the timing is just not right. But when will the timing be right if nobody believes the timing is right? At some point, somebody's got to step out. And so this ideology of when and where Major League Baseball would ultimately be integrated, it had been stewing for quite some time. The great Black writers of that time, they were pushing for integration. But let me back up. The great Black writers were the ones who actually was pushing for organized black baseball. As I mentioned, barnstorming was really the main stay in in black baseball. That is how they were playing their games. And it was at the urgency of the black press that pushed for organized black baseball, which ultimately led Andrew Root Foster to convene that meeting here in Kansas City with eight independent black baseball team owners coming together to organize the Negro National League. That is what the black press wanted. That is what the black press got. Interestingly enough, it would be the black press that would ultimately push for the integration of our game. So in some ways, they did a 360-degree shift. They went from pushing for organized body for black baseball so that it could mirror Major League Baseball to pushing for the integration of our sport, which would ultimately killed the Negro Leagues. And there's a deeper dive into that story that we'll talk about in a future episode of Black Diamonds. But this movement now was underway. And it was gaining some traction, particularly as we enter into the 30s, after the Great Depression, into the 40s. And World War II, which we talk about playing such a pivotal role in the integration of our game. Like every other industry on the planet, World War II was a major turning point for Major League Baseball. First off, the sport suffered a drop in popularity as its stars headed overseas and its fans turned their eyes elsewhere. This is former Washington Senators owner Calvin Griffith, who served as executive vice president under his father, Clark Griffith, during the war. Well, uh, of course, the war had a big effect on us because so many of our stars had to go into the service. And baseball had to rebuild itself uh, for its popularity. We needed somebody to uh, be patient and have an outlook where we could get the the proper press saying that uh, baseball is coming back. Baseball uh, needed a shot in the arm, and we were thinking about expanding back in those days and uh, how to go about doing it and reshuffling the leagues to have a little more competition among ourselves. I mean, the National League and the American League. 
we all felt that there would be a, a dry spot somewhere along the line because of the novelty of the war being over and unemployment. You see, there was this growing sentiment that you had these young black soldiers dying, fighting the same racism in another country that we were being asked to accept here at home. And the sentiment was becoming, if they can die fighting for their country, why can't they play baseball in this country? Former Cleveland Indians owner, Bill Veck. You see, the, the, the position of, of blacks received a, a considerable impetus because this is just post-war. They're good enough to get killed defending you. Well, then they ought to be able to play with you. So the, the bastion was weakening. And it was increasingly difficult to defend against it. But great black writers like Wendell Smith, Sam Lacey, Faye Young, they were pushing this agenda, and people were starting to listen. Professor Chris Lamb chairs the journalism department at Indiana University, Indianapolis, and is the author or editor of several books on sports, race, and the media, notably Conspiracy of Silence, Sports Writers, and the Long Campaign to Desegregate Baseball. They were in a quandary, and Wendell Smith, who plays a big part in this story, told owners, you know, this is not the time. We have to get Jackie Robinson and other black players into the major leagues because that's part of integration. And as Robinson talked about the Negro Leagues, he was against segregation. Well, well, it wasn't their fault. It wasn't black owners' fault that baseball was segregated. There's so much appalling. And, and this is really the story of America. Because the integration of baseball came almost a decade before Brown versus Board of Education and Rosa Parks and all that. And it was the most important story about race in the pretty much the decade after World War II. Starting in 1933, Wendell Smith filled the pages of the Pittsburgh Courier-Journal, one of the most prominent black newspapers in the country, with calls to Commissioner Landis to end his sports unwritten apartheid as well as challenges to Pittsburgh Pirates owner William Benswanger and other league executives to step up, sign great black ball players, and win a championship because of it. My goodness, he's right there in Pittsburgh where you've got Josh Gibson, you've got Oscar Charleston, you've got Buck Leonard, Cool Papa Bell, you've got all these guys in your backyard. And so he had tinkered with the notion but he wouldn't pull the trigger. And it wasn't like the Pirates were the Yankees. They <laughs> exactly. were very good. I can see the Yankees saying that we've got a good thing going. The Pirates could have gone from being a mediocre to not very good team to beating the Yankees in a single year if they had signed those players. And I don't know why. Because that's one of the things that helps break down racial barriers are the fact that Branch Rickey wanted to win. And William Benzwanger apparently didn't, or he was just too scared. In 1935, the Courier-Journal quoted Cardinals pitcher Dizzy Dean following his barnstorming appearances against the Negro Leaguers as saying that if the big leaguers believed they were better than the best Negro players, (laughs) they had another thought coming. Smith began connecting his advocacy for the abolition of the color line in the Courier-Journal to his advocacy for a sense of pride unity, and self-help in the Black American community. He pushed for the formation of an NAACP for the Black ball player to unite as one and to attack the color line until we dropped from exhaustion. And when Europe began to fall to Nazi Germany in the late 30s, Smith connected the dots fearlessly. He punched at white America through the keys of a typewriter, urging them to see the parallels. He wrote of Major League Baseball in 1938. They play the same game as Hitler. They discriminate, segregate, and hold down a minor race just as he does. While Hitler cripples the Jews, the great leaders of our national pastime refuse to recognize our black ball players. In his autobiography after his career ended, Jackie Robinson said he would be forever indebted to Wendell Smith. One, for his fight, and two, well, in 1945, it was Wendell Smith 
who first mentioned the name of Jackie Robinson to Branch Rickey. In his early years, Sam Lacey was a decent semi-pro ball player in Washington, D.C. But more importantly, he spent over 80 years as a writer for the Washington Tribune, the Chicago Defender, and the Baltimore Afro-American, advocating for equal rights for Black athletes and integration. He pushed owners, he pushed commissioners, and he pushed the entirety of white America. In the year 2000, just shy of his 97th birthday, Sam Lacey sat down with interviewer Dave Paulson, courtesy of the Sabre Oral History Collection. Wendell Smith was a courier, and I had to work them together. Now, Wendell and the courier covered the old Negro League. We were trying to figure out the best person we decided to jack it. Between Wendell and myself, the jacket was not the best ball player, but the most suitable. And the reason we thought that he was the most suitable was that he was college trained, he had had interaction with white players, he had won from them and lost to them out at UCLA, and that all these things worked in his favor. He was academically well first, which most of the Negro League players were not at that time, plus the fact that he was engaged to be married. That worked in his favor also when because we knew that a colored guy coming into a white society at that time would be hazardous, thinking that there was going to be some problem between a colored man and a white woman. So that his being engaged to be married, but I know it's hard to hear that, but that was the atmosphere. Yeah, make, makes that. sense. So that's what you want to do, to be selected jacket. I was looking at some stuff that was written by some of the players and discussed with particularly Sam Lacey. Lacey had gone out and talked to Negro League players about what they thought about the possibilities of integration. But for me, Judd Wilson had the most interesting take. Boot June Wilson, Judd Wilson, Hall of Famer, great player also for the Homestead Grays. But at that time, he was playing third base for the Philadelphia Stars. And and Wilson's take was that he really wasn't that worried about it. He said it was pointless to even discuss this since it wasn't going to happen at any time soon. He saw it. The major leagues were dominated by Southerners, loyal supporters of segregation. So no change was likely, no matter how much certain people advocated for it. Further, he doubted that integration would be good for black players since so many cities did not have integrated hotels or practice facilities and even most ballparks were segregated. What was needed, Wilson said, was a universal movement for change. And in 1939, he did not see such a movement occurring. Professor Chris Lamb. In black communities, if you were... Sam Lacey, you were as well-known in your community as Shirley Povich was in his community because you would get these black newspapers, and even though it came out every week, it would be – the the Courier, Pittsburgh Courier might have a circulation of 200,000, but it was read by maybe half a million people because it would be passed around from person to person. And Sam Lacey was as good a writer as there was in America. Sam Lacey had gone – early on, the late 30s into the early 1940s, and had tried to meet with Major League Baseball owners to push this agenda. He had great conversation with Clark Griffith. And as we know, Clark Griffith had tinkered with the notion of integration well before Branch Rickey made the move to go get Jackie Robinson. Clark Griffith, who owned the Washington Senators, and their ballpark, Griffith Stadium, backed up to where Howard University is today. Washington was a very heavily segregated city at that time. It's hard to believe now because it's obviously been well-known as Chocolate City, but that had always been the case. And so Griffith was watching the Homestead Grays play in his ballpark. And Griffith was watching two phenomenal players from the Grays do some phenomenal things. Those two players, the legendary Walter Buck Leonard, and of course, the great Josh Gibson. 
He's watching Leonard hit line drive lasers all over his ballpark, play a dazzling first base. He's watching this enormously powerful man named Joshua Gibson hit balls in parts of his ballpark that no mere mortal had ever hit them. And and so he thought about the notion of doing this, but he backed off. As he would tell Sam Lacey, the timing isn't right. And of course, Lacey's rebuttal is the timing will never be right if no one makes a move. Clark Griffith, however, for whatever the reason was, decided that he was not going to risk his standings with the owners to go out and make this move. Now, I surmise that Clark Griffith understood the economic impact of what this decision could potentially have because the Homestead Grays were outdrawing the Washington Senators in their own ballpark. He's filling up his stadium with black fans and he's getting a percentage of the gate and again, likely all of the concession. And so when it came down to whether or not I want to be the guy that will ultimately challenge Major League Baseball to open its doors to black players, or do I just want to sit back and continue to pull in this revenue that I don't really have to work that hard to get? He chose the latter. I went to him and told him that he was looking at Negro League teams coming in there. He was seeing Josh Gibson. Buckle Leonard, Sasha Page, and uh, Queen Papa Bell. That was the first in war, first in peace, last in the earth of me. And why not use some of these ball players to try to help get him out of the second division? But he thought it wasn't the time. And I think he's familiar with the rest of the story. Yeah. I left the old Washington Tribune and went to Chicago for the defender because Doc Griffith had rejected me. I wanted to get closer to Jerry Landis. So I went out to Chicago to work with the Chicago Defender. I uh, wanted to get to him because while I was at the Tribune, I had written to him several times and even sent a telegram to him with a return receipt, asking him for any time of day, any day of the week, any week of the month, that he might be able to give me 10 minutes and that I would be there. The return receipt came by design, but no appointment. So that's when I moved to Chicago and was closer to his office at that time. He still rejected me. Sam Lacey never gave up the fight. And I think doing what he thought was right made it a tireless crusade that he would use his column to express what he felt was important as we continued the effort to integrate our game. And of course, it would be Sam Lacey who not only was a confidant for so many Black players and pushed for their opportunity to try out for Major League teams. But maybe more importantly, it would be Sam Lacey who would be the rock, the shoulder that Jackie Robinson leaned on through his perilous efforts to break baseball's color barrier, the trials and tribulations that Robinson was facing. Sam Lacey was facing them in the press box. But it was the two of them who kind of helped shield each other from the nastiness of what this fight for integration was going to be. I realized that when I played with them against some of the old Negro League players, I realized that some of those little Negro League players that I was playing against were just as good as some of the major league players that had been coming into Washington. There was a certain amount of equality there. Some of them were just as good as some of those major leagues. And I felt a write-up of the old Washington Tribune that this was something that seemed to me to be unfair, that these players were being denied an opportunity to play. But for me, the story of a guy named Lester Rodney. Lester Rodney, y'all, was a white communist journalist who wrote for the communist newspaper, The Daily Worker. And Lester Rodney may be as influential as anyone in helping usher in integration in our sport. Here's the late Lester Rodney speaking about an encounter in the Dodger clubhouse 10 years before Jackie Robinson. These selections are from the mini documentary entitled Crime of the Big Leagues, produced by Tomorrow Media and Roughhouse. 
Boiler Grimes was the manager of the Dodgers in 1937. And I was out at Ebbetsfield one day, and uh, he's a former spitball pitcher, you know. The Dodgers were a terrible team. They were sixth in an eight-team league in midseason. And I said, Burley, uh, how, how, how are things going? You know, he said, well, I could use some hitting. I could use some pitching. Ha ha, you know. I said, how'd you like to put a Dodger uniform on Satchel Page and Josh Gibson? And Burley looked like I hit him over the head with a two-by-four. Yeah, yeah. He said, Leslie, you don't talk about those things, he says. He said, that will never happen. Think about the trains, think about the hotels, think about spring training in the South. It'll never happen. Talk about something else. I said, but Burley, do you know how good these players are? He said, of course I do. I'm a baseball man. We all know how good Sasha Page is. So I said, could I put a headline in my paper tomorrow? I know how good they are, Burley Grimes. Not, not, I know how good they are and they ought to be in the big leagues. Just, I know how good they are. He said, no, 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 I don't want to stick my neck out. No. Lester Rodney wrote consistently and constantly about the great black stars of the Negro Leagues, and then he started to question out loud why they weren't there in the major leagues. You know, you can know about something, but not be overwhelmed by it until you're in the field. And here I am writing about baseball, and I see some of the great Negro League teams playing. I know how good Josh Gibson is, for instance, the greatest catcher who ever put on a uniform, by the way. He's so good. He, if Johnny Bench is the definitive defensive catcher, which I think he is, Josh Gibson was at least that good. The pitchers loved him. And he was, at bat, he was nothing less than a right-handed hitting Babe Ruth. There, there are markers in Yankee Stadium where Josh Gibson hit, hit one that far and so on. Now, it, he was tremendous, and he never played in any of big league ball. Well, the point was I felt an immediate vacuum in, in baseball, you know, that nobody is addressing this thing. The people today would find it hard to believe that halfway through the 20th century, the land of the free, if you'd go back to the great newspapers of our times, the New York Times, Washington Post, the Boston Globe, St. Louis Post, whatever, you'll find no mention of the fact that players who might be qualified or overqualified to play in our national pastime were not permitted to play because of the pigmentation of their skin. Youngsters today find that hard to believe, you know. I tell my granddaughter, she's a giant fan, she lives in Santa Rosa, she's a big, big picture of Barry Bonds in her room. And I say to her, can you imagine if everybody knew how good Barry Bonds was today and he was not allowed to play? I said, could you believe that in America? She said, no, I can't believe that. But that's the way it was in the 30s. That's what Josh Gibson was up against. That's what Satchel Paige, who only came in as a 42-year-old rookie, so on. It wasn't enough in the late 1930s and early 1940s for white players to just recognize the greatness of their peers in the Negro Leagues. Ted Williams, Bob Feller, Dizzy Dean, Joe DiMaggio. Those men knew what the greats of the Negro Leagues were capable of, but they needed their voices to be heard. And when the traditional white press was reluctant to oblige, there came Lester Rodney and the Daily Worker. I was in the Yankee dressing room, and we were all chatting with the Yankees. It was, I guess it was the beginning of a big series with Cleveland, that's why we're there. And somebody asked Joe, not me, somebody, one of the other sports writers asked Joe, Joe, who's the best pitcher you face? Thinking in terms of big league, you know, of course, in his year and a half. And Joe DiMaggio, young Joe DiMaggio, said without hesitation, Satchel Page. Now, we didn't say Satchel Page, who would have been in the big leagues, just Satchel Page, who he had pitched against in postseason exhibition games on the West Coast. He had played against, I should say, batted. And uh, so he answered the question honestly, you know. The next day I had a big headline, Page Greatest I Face, dot, dot, DiMaggio, and none of the other papers had that. Why? Because they knew that if they turned in a story like that, they'd get a quizzical look, you know we don't fool around with that stuff, you know. They knew that uh, their newspapers didn't want to go into the uh, band. Why didn't they want to go into the band? I mean, I, it was just the way things were then. In May 1942, Lester Rodney wrote an open letter to the commissioner in the Daily Worker as part of a campaign entitled, Can You Read, Judge Landis? There was a Sunday in Chicago where the uh, Cubs were playing a doubleheader, a Sunday doubleheader. And a Negro League game featuring Satchel Page was at Comiskey Park. 
and it outdrew the Cub doubleheader. So I ran the two box scores with the attendance figures underneath them and a big headline, can you read Judge Landis? And you know, the time is long past, the fans of America are telling you something, you know, and can you hear Judge Landis? Rodney had this to say, and I quote, Negro soldiers and sailors are among those beloved heroes of the American people who have already died for the preservation of this country and everything this country stands for. Yes, including the great game of baseball. You, the self-proclaimed czar of baseball, are the man responsible for keeping Jim Crow in our national pastime. You are the one refusing to say the word, which would do more to justify baseball's existence in this year of war than any other single thing. You are the one who was blocking the step, which would put baseball in line with the rest of the country, with the United States government itself. America is against discrimination, Judge Landis. Manager Jimmy Dykes of the Chicago White Sox this spring was forced to tell two fine young Negro applicants for a tryout at the Pasadena training camp, I know you're good, and I'd love to have you. So would the rest of the boys and every other manager in the big leagues, I'm sure. But it's not up to me. It's up to you, Judge Landis. The American people are waiting for you. You are holding up the works, and the first casualty lists have been published. End quote. And by the way, those two young black players who were turned away by the White Sox after requesting a tryout, they were Nate Moreland and Jackie Robinson, March 22, 1942. By the middle of July 1942, Lester Rodney had reportedly gathered more than one million signatures on a petition to have the color barrier removed from baseball. And Rodney said, and we didn't have a million communists. It's something you do and you do and you want to see results. And the petitions piled up. And in the May Day Parade, which was a leftist parade in New York, they used to come down Fifth Avenue, 100,000 strong. We had trade union teams, black and white in uniform, holding up signs and Jim Crow and baseball, you know. So the evidence of it was stronger. And some of the newspapers finally began to deal with the question. What happens now? White fans start to pick up the same mantra. And they were starting to put an insurmountable amount of pressure on Major League Baseball to re-examine its hiring practices and open its door to both black and brown players to play in the major leagues. As Lester Rodney would say, I never met a black player who told me he wanted to stay in the Negro Leagues. That's ridiculous. If you feel you're the best violinist in the country and you live in Paducah, you don't want to stay in Paducah. And, and so he led this charge. I was the only sports writer on any newspaper in New York who was reporting on the black players, how good they were, and the fact that they couldn't get into the big base. As I mentioned, the New York Times would have a small article, a factual article saying that the Homestead Grays will play the Newark Black Eagles at 2 p.m. today, but not a mention of the fact that none of them were eligible to play in the big leagues or even the minor leagues in what was then our national pastime. Professor Chris Lamb. There had been so much racism. There's so much talk in the sports, in the sporting news about we can't allow blacks in baseball because there'll be race riots and because yeah. blacks don't want to play in white baseball. Yeah. Well, I love these conversations that still happen where white people tend to think what black people want without ever knowing any black people or asking any <laughs> black people what they want. Sports was the only place in America where white America knew black people. White America knew nothing about black doctors, black educators, black inventors, black poets, but they knew about black athletes because on the sports page, there was kind of a meritocracy. Former commissioner from 1945 to 1951, Happy Chandler. I say the one thing that caused reflection was that they, the Giants were at the polo grounds. That's in the heart of Harlem. And they said, frankly, that they would have a right and they would burn down the polo ground. Of course, Harris Stone 
didn't want to burn down the polo grounds. You can't blame him for that, you understand. But their reasons were not of sufficient moment. They were not well thought out. They were going against the grain. And the grain is that every fellow in this country making a difference what color he is, if he's got ability, he's entitled to a chance. They were going to deny him that. that, that you, I don't think you can justify that. I didn't think so then. I don't think so now. But really, what we're saying then is the tenor of the times was such that they were afraid they would lose money. Well, that, that pinches a nerve, you know. That, the money-making proposition was enough to sway them. They were in, and this other guy's out, so they want to keep him out. Kennesaw Mountain Landis, of course, who had been a longtime commissioner of Major League Baseball, had always vowed that as long as he was the commissioner, there would never be a black man playing in the major leagues. Well, as fate would have it, Landis died. And so now the door is starting to open a little bit more with a new commissioner and a new direction. Subscribe and stay tuned to Black Diamonds for more on 1945, the reign of Happy Chandler, an opening for Branch Rickey, and a walk on the moon for Jackie Robinson. And don't miss right now in your podcast feed, my conversation with award-winning writer William C. Roden about the history of baseball's black press and just how far we've come in 75 years since Jackie. But did that progress come at a cost? If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap Podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Serious XM Podcasts.